I'm your host, Matthew Crawford, and tonight we have kind of an off-schedule uh, conversation. Uh, we've got uh, Dan Wilson, a microbiologist who uh, goes by Debunk the Funk on his YouTube channel, and today we're going to discuss um, uh, whether or not uh, we can know uh, testing validity for um, the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines uh, based on their trials. So I'm going to bring Dan in now. And we might discuss some other topics too. We we don't quite have a, a hard limit, but um, you know, the, this was the the primary impetus to the conversation. And I'm trying to bring in Dan's video. Dan, can you hear me? I'm going to try removing it and bringing it back. He may be frozen. Dan, are you with us? Well, we were in the studio together um, just a moment before we got started. Uh, it may be that he's frozen. Maybe he'll have to to exit and come back. Uh, there may be a little bit of uh, technical difficulty here. But, uh, you know, I'll I'll just kind of get us started in the meantime. Um, let me see if I can I can go find uh, the, the tweet discussion that led us to the to the point of this conversation. Actually, you know, what? I, I'm going to bring up the the article. Um, few weeks ago, I was having a conversation um, with Chris Masterjohn, who had thought for a while, who had wondered the degree to which um, the vaccines themselves might be confounding uh, PCR tests. And um, given the, the data that we've seen from uh, COVID-like illness in hospitals, seemed like a very reasonable hypothesis. And he had mentioned um, at least one other vaccine for which that appeared to be true. But um, in particular, what I did was I called uh, Robert Malone and I, I talked with him about vaccine trials since he um, has been you know, in, intimately involved in, in vaccine research and trials and his wife is, is involved in, in policy and, and the way all that, that works. Um, and uh, you know, Robert mentioned uh, that ordinarily, that if we went out, you know, ordinarily vaccines take like a decade, maybe longer um, to, to be approved. And that part of that approval process was uh, testing to make sure that, uh, uh, to make testing to make sure that the testing process used to detect disease was itself validated to have the same sensitivity and specificity for both the vaccinated and unvaccinated groups. Uh, the two cohorts in in you know a, a trial. So uh, I could find no evidence that that took place. Uh, nobody, uh, even after publishing the article, nobody has sent me any evidence that that took place. And I was having a you know we're having conversations online, and and I mentioned, you know that that if that if this didn't take place, we we really just we don't know if you know if the vaccine's uh, uh, arm uh, was was an improvement over the non-vaccine arm, and and of course you know, months and months later, there was really no difference in uh, overall mortality. And in fact, more people had died in, in the vaccine arm, though there may be a difference in person days because uh, immediately after a few months um, when they could, uh, 
uh, Pfizer, for instance, and, and Moderna started uh, vaccinating people who had been in the placebo arm. So we don't have any longer term data than that. So there might be a slight difference in person days that accounts for the difference in all cause mortality, but it was pretty much the same. Um, since then, we've also seen uh, at least uh, one instance from the Pfizer data dump in which there was someone who died after being vaccinated uh, a couple days later in their home. There was like a courtesy well check and it was determined without any examination that the vaccine could not have have caused the death. Um, so there, there's, there are some real questions about, you know, what's going on with the vaccines. Uh, um, yeah, in my strong opinion. But Dan has uh, has blanked out of the studio. He hasn't come back yet. I'll bring him in as soon as he is. Um, but I, I don't yet know this is happening. So, you know, um, but, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, I guess I don't, I don't want to get ahead of him. I want to, I don't want to feel like this is a, an unfair conversation. Um, so I'm going to, you know, leave any kind of uh, math logic to the side for the moment. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to do a little educating right here. Uh, the PCR test that was actually used in the Pfizer trial, for instance, was Cepheid. Um, and they had a couple of backups like, hey, if you, if you can't get this or if you don't have it on hand, even after trying, you can use these other tests. But as I understand it, Cepheid wound up being used on all participants or supposedly, supposedly used uh, for all the testing. So, you know, we can focus in on, focus in on, on you know, one single test. And Cepheid is a Bay Area Diagnostics Corporation with um, with DARPA ties. Well, uh, you know what? Uh, we've got Dan now. I'll bring Dan into the studio. Uh, uh, you got uh, technical difficulties for a moment? A little bit. Uh, looks like it. Uh, well, hopefully uh, we'll be able to, to chat smoothly from here. Hopefully. How are you doing? I'm doing mostly well. How are you? Doing well. Um, well, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself for the Rounding the Earth audience. Um, so you are a, mic uh, a microbiologist? Uh, molecular biologist. Molecular biologist, thank you. Um, and and where'd you where'd you do your research? What was it focused on? I did my PhD at Carnegie Mellon University, and it was in ribosome biogenesis. The PhD right. was okay. Um, there we go. So, are are you in like the? You seem young to me. Are you in the postdoc doc stage of your career? I work in industry now. I didn't do a postdoc. I see. Okay. Um, wanted to start a family, so. Postdoc isn't too friendly to that lifestyle. So, yeah, what kind of uh, what kind of work are you doing now? I just work for a company called Eurofins, doing uh, doing work uh, in various clinical trial settings, clinical trial products. Okay. Um, well, so um, I, I went over with uh, the audience the the basics behind the debate we were having as to whether or not um, a process that tested as a proxy for disease should need to be validated itself in order for the results to be valid. And your argument is, doesn't matter. No, so, so we're talking about COVID PCR tests during the clinical trials, yes? Yeah. Yeah, so they were validated. And... Well, so, they were validated for so the just first thing the you vaccinated said, arm. So the right? first thing you said. Be clear about that. Sorry? They were validated for the unvaccinated arm. They're validated to test positive for SARS-CoV-2 or not. For people who are unvaccinated. But the, the, the debate here is whether or not we know that the sensitivity and specificity will be the same for somebody who's vaccinated versus unvaccinated. 
there's no reason why it wouldn't be. Well, we don't know that unless we test, right? I mean, that's I, I, you know, like already that argument, you're just knocking down the entire purpose of a randomized control trial, which is mm, to no. see whether or not there are known or unknown confounders. The vaccine itself could be a confounder. How? Well, we don't have to know the mechanism. No, how? Well, I, we just know that it happens in the past. I mean, most things, most things how, in medicine, how did, we don't how did even it know the mechanism. In the past? Right? Within the last decade, we learned the mechanism for aspirin. But we so, used it for so, years so, without knowing the mechanism. We so just how, did it, how did it happen in the past? Well, we don't necessarily know. In which situation did it happen in the past? Well, it happened during the Pfizer trial, for one thing. For a nuclear, for for in protein testing, there was confounding in the data. How? Well, it the the proportion the uh, proportion of the people who were positive for COVID. Um, you did not have the same sensitivity and specificity as you did for the for the uh, the sensitivity and specificity were different between the vaccinated and unvaccinated arms for detection of the N protein. Are you saying are you talking about the antigen tests? Um, let's see. So it, yeah, it could happen because, for the antigen tests because in the clinical trials, it was most it was based on a nucleic acid test the positive result. A, co a positive COVID case was required to have one of a list of symptoms and a positive nucleic acids test. They also did some serological testing, but that wasn't really used to determine whether or not it was a COVID case because serological assays at the time were pretty rudimentary, not widely used, and not just not really robust. Well, why could a vaccine confound a serological test, but not a PCR test? It didn't confound a, a serological test. Okay. Well, I, in, in the, in the documentation for both the Pfizer and the Moderna trials, we had a different ratio of positives for the people who had COVID. That seems like the definition of confounding, right? For an antigen test? Let's take a look here. Oh, Jicky leaks. So here, here's here's the thing. It can you show me data that the serological tests somehow confounded were confounded within the vaccinated group, and can you? Show me data that that is because of the vaccine and not because the virus didn't get a chance to. No, because they didn't oh. do that test. So, so <laughs> they, they didn't compare the two. That's the point. How do well, we? They, know they weren't using the antigen no test. If we don't, if we don't run a comparison test. Well, we're talking. So, so we're talking about the PCR test. We don't. In the antigen test, if you're testing for the antigen of the virus, then you could have fewer positive results for an N antigen in the vaccinated arm because the virus is getting neutralized before it has a chance to replicate enough to show a positive on an antigen test. But for a nucleic acid test, which is much more sensitive than an antigen test, which is what they used to determine a COVID case in the clinical trials, then you don't have that problem. Wait, so you're saying that it's because of sensitivity calculations? It's because 
Essentially, yes. Do you know the sensitivity of an antigen test versus a nucleic acid test? Well, there are many dozens of examples of, of I've, I've seen uh, tables for both, but what's your point? Nucleic acid sent, uh, tests are much more sensitive than antigen tests. Well, it depends on which test we're looking at. It also depends on the environment. I mean, PCR mm. tests, PCR tests, the, the, the numbers that you see category like that that are mentioned like uh you know uh, for a pcr test those are laboratory condition right when you take a swab out in in the wild um you know we don't know that that has the same sensitivity and specificity in fact we know that it doesn't because there can be off-target amplicons what okay um it doesn't really matter if it's done in a lab versus done on a stick um you're saying the environment for a pcr test does not change the sensitivity or specificity. It doesn't change the nature of the test. You can take a sample into a lab and do an antigen test, which is going to give you the same results as essentially an antigen test on a stick. And so you're saying that the then you can, or, or you can take that sample and run it with PCR and you're going to get much more sensitivity. So your claim is that, um, your claim is that there is no chance of picking up additional off-target amplicons regardless of the environment in which a sample is taken. Are you, can you specify your questions? Because you're, I An off-target amplicon would be another piece of nucleic acid, which has some chance of being swept up in the replication process at some point in the cycle count, and then replicated to a point where uh, it shows up as positive. And what would need to what would need to happen in order for that to happen? Well, it, it's sort of a general unknown as to exactly Not how really. how much of a I mean, we know that it happens, uh, but we don't know like we don't know anything like a, a set of um, criteria under which yeah. that happens. I mean, ultimately, so the so the requirement would be that the pro, the primers and probe would have to bind to a specific sequence, and so. You, you, you know how the qPCR uh, reaction is set up, right? Sure. So with with what with what reagents or with what active materials? Well, are, you, are you asking me to like uh, like differentiate between different assays? Just the just the um, what, what are the three things that a qPCR reaction needs? I don't know. I mean, my wife designs and I can go the, ask the nucleic, I'm not sure why it matters. So I guess, I guess it's not a fair question, but generally what I'm, the, what I'm looking for is a forward primer, a reverse primer and a probe, right? Okay. So those, those three things need to bind specifically to targets and those targets are nucleic acid sequences. Okay. So in order for the reaction to work, you need the forward reverse, and the probe to bind in specific places. And that's not gonna really happen if on a random off target. Okay, that's a claim, but that's a claim without a warrant. No, it's not. And, and I, I've, oh, yes it is. No, yeah, it's, you, it's, you've gotten, it's, you, you said that uh, this was your rule number three, only make claims that we have data for on hand at the time. Yeah, and qPCR is a very well studied uh, reaction. And we make the for, make the primers and probes specific lengths. Okay. Such, my Such wife's shaking that. her head. No, she designs these. Well, so you're, you're, you're violating rule number three. Only make claims that we have data for on hand at the time. 
Yeah. So do you know how likely it is for a forward primer, reverse primer, and a probe to all randomly bind to a non-target uh, place? No one knows the exact answer to that question. It's, what we it's have a very, a it's a very small, small, small chance. Uh, so no, uh, not according to Pfizer, not according to their data in their data. And I'll, I'll bring this up in a moment. I'll, I'll take a moment to find okay, this, but sure. in their data. If you cycled up to, um, I think it was in the high thirties, then 97.3% of the positives were false positives. No. Okay. I'll, I'll go find that data. That's not true. Because, okay, you can show me the, the data to support that claim, but I'm, I think I know what you're, what you're getting at and no QPCR cycling is normally done above 35 cycles, but it's quantitative. So you're not taking just one measurement at the end of those cycles and you're not you're not just looking at one result at the end, essentially. You're not? No. No, you're looking at the curve. You're looking at how many targets were positive and you're looking at whether or not, whether or not it all falls within the range of the assay. Okay, I've but got... I'm curious to see what you mean by. Oh, so this this is not a false positive, yeah. So this is looking at I, I know this figure. This is looking at virus culturability. So this is looking at whether or not you can actually culture virus from the sample. This is in regard this. The implications of this are mostly in regards to transmission, but it's not. It doesn't even really get at that. So. You can. Uh, so, so you're right that it has to do with culturability, but that's the best test of what a true positive is. Culturability no. is how sensitivity and specificity are determined by testing companies, right? No. So what happens in PCR is you're getting a snapshot of whatever's in that sample, right? So in this case, you are testing for the presence of nucleic acid. You're not testing for the presence of a live virus. You're not testing for the sure. for disease. You're not testing sure. for anything except the presence of the virus. Okay. So if you get if you get a result way out at 38 cycles, that most likely means that you're not picking up infectious virus in that sample. However, well, right. Yeah. How, if you don't have cultural virus then then you're picking up something else, which is no. setting off the positive of the PCR. No, it just means there's not enough virus in there to infect your cells. But we are talking about positives. We are, yes. this, this, is, this, is, this is the ratio from positive signals. So these yes. are from positive tests. Yes, so. But only 2.7% of them have cultural culturable virus. So you don't call the other 97.3% no. false positives? No, so if you fail to get a culturable virus in a yes no in yet in a yes no test then that is again a snapshot if you test one day later or two days later and suddenly the cycles are lower what so, does that mean so there are four categories there's true positive false positives true negatives no. false negatives no no yes so, so, yes we're not talking about 
about that here. This is my domain. So, this is where I, I do the work. So, so here, just uh, answer my question, please. Okay. If you test one day at cycle 38 and you are calling that a false positive, and then you test one or two days later, and the cycles are now down to 25, what does that mean? What do you mean the cycles are down to 25? You mean that uh, 25 is where you get detectable 25 virus? was the cycle threshold for that sample, yeah. Well, uh, cycle threshold meaning that's where you started detecting or that's where you stopped cycling because there's a difference between the two. So it's the, the cycle threshold is the cycle at which the sample tests positive. Okay, so repeat the question again. So if you one day are at cycle 38, you would call that a false positive, yes, because you're not likely to get culturable virus, right? Uh, well, you might be, you might not be. I mean, so, so if you test positive- you got true positives at, and false positives. Okay, so if you, don't, if you don't get culturable virus on day one and the cycles are at 38, are you calling that a false positive? Uh, well, if you can't get culturable virus, uh, then yes, I would call that a false positive. Okay, so then you test one or two days later, and then the cycles are within the range of twenty-five, okay. and then and then you're much more likely in this in the context of these data to get a positive culturable virus. So what okay. does that what does that mean in that situation? Okay, so sort of a conditional analysis that maybe um, the, the there were like you know three variants in there that that yeah, I, I'm being uh, extreme here obviously, but the, there was a small number of variants possibly that then grew over the next few days to an infection. Right, so that's what you're getting at. So when you have a positive PCR test, it means that there is virus there. It does not mean that it's picking up some random other thing that is not SARS-CoV-2. So it means no, that there is no. SARS-CoV-2. Positive PCR test does not mean that there is virus there. Yes, it does. No, absolutely not. There are there are, there are such things as off-target amplicons. This there, is, there could be viral fragments, first of all, without virus. You said so yourself a moment ago, but there can be other there can be other piece there can be other sequences of DNA that themselves um, you know you've got these uh, 18 to 24 base um, you know bookends and and you don't have to get them exactly perfect sometimes. Sometimes something that is not quite matching gets caught up in the process. Maybe it's cycle 18 and then replicates to thousands of uh, you know, replicants. Uh, no, if, the, the, if your primers are well-designed and the test is well-validated, which this was, then it is very specific to SARS-CoV-2, which this test is. So your, your claim is that there are no off-target applicants with these tests? There is within the context of this test and within the parameters determined by the validation of the test, then you are only going to get SARS-CoV-2. Okay. You're making a claim for which you do not have data on hand. No, there is plenty of data. Okay, you don't have data on hand. I do. Okay, it's, it's, link, it's linked in my videos. Do you want me to link it to you? Well, show us the data. Okay. That, that there is no way that there's any kind of off-target amplicon. That seems that seems preposterous to me. Um, and I've talked to enough people who, you know, I, I, I live in a home with one who who make PCR assays, who design PCR assays. Uh, I just don't believe that you're going to have data to support that. Well, this test was validated to only detect SARS-CoV-2. So 
how would you how would you possibly validate that that it couldn't detect any other nucleic sequence? You use bioinformatics and you use uh, wet lab work. Well, I understand the bioinformatics part. You go, okay, we're, we're picking we're picking these bookends such that you know this eighteen to twenty four base pairs or however many you pick. Let's say let's say twenty. These twenty base pairs, um, that, you know, two to the uh, to the twentieth power, two to the fortieth power, whatever you want to call it. Uh, let's just say two to the twentieth, just in case we want to. Um, we want to assume some sort of uh, rotational, you know, one in a million. And, and, and so you go through, you look at a, you look at a, a catalog, a library, and you say, well, it doesn't match anything else with, pro, you know, two, you know, three, four, five, you know, uh, nucleotides. However, you don't know if your library is complete either. And we are talking about a virus that travels in a swarm with all sorts of other coronaviruses. Yeah. So it so, is very possible that there's homologous transfer between SARS-CoV-2 and those other coronaviruses. Oh, no. So so have you seen this happen in the real world with uh, this test being used for almost two years now? Um, well, nobody's nobody's deciding that, but we, we have probable cause because they keep using S uh, gene target failure to uh, to be a proxy uh, test for uh, each next variant. It's not but just. It, 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 but here's the thing: it, it's up to you to prove that there's no homologous transfer in the cloud, right? I mean, so, it's like you're asking me to, to prove a negative. You so know, here, how, so how here. can you determine so, that so, that homologous transfer doesn't occur? So, look, COVID PCR tests have multiple different targets per test, right? Some tests, some, some of them yeah. do, and, and we have different yeah. rules. Sure, usually all, two of three or of them, three of three. All of them okay. have more than one. All of them have more than one. Some it's, of them have more than one. <laughs> all of them. It, all of the ones that are used and validated have more than one target. Okay, the, the ones used in the uh, in the trials, I'll agree with that. Sure. It's either ORF1AB or a, a spike RBD or the N gene or the E gene. Some combination of those four is usually what people pick to target. And in those tests, the acceptance criteria for a sample is that all targets need to be within the range of the test. So you're not going to get recombination of multiple different targets into something else. And we see this in the real world where if you look at test positivity, percent test positivity for countries that avoided COVID for the most part for the better part of a year, while there was no COVID in that country, you see practically zero test positivity. Okay, so what page am I looking at to back up your claim? So if you scroll all the way down to where they tested it against multiple other pathogens. There you go. Not detected, not detected, not detected. Right, so, okay. I mean, this, this is kind of vague here. You know, we have, you know, we don't even know how many coronaviruses are traveling in the quasi-species swarm. We know how many, we, we know, we know of the, it's four human coronaviruses. Well, there, there are four that have been discussed more recently, but like JJ Cooey, for instance, on his stream, he has more shown, recently? he has shown 20 different uh, coronaviruses that were, that were being tested for years ago, but are just no longer being tested for. We don't know that they're gone. Hang on. So four, four coronaviruses that were discussed recently. Right. That the, are in, that are part of the usual coronavirus test. Uh, the H coves, um, 
I can't remember how they're all referred yeah. to, but yeah. those, those are, it's not that there are only four. It's just that there are four that are part of a test. No, there are four main human coronaviruses that commonly cause disease. Okay. Can you back that up? Yeah, that's common knowledge. No, it's, it's not common knowledge. Yes, it I, is. Uh, okay. Uh, you said, common knowledge you, you said only make claims that we can have data for on hand. Yeah, when I write my article, when I write my article, I will find what those other coronaviruses are and I'll list them. You're going to write an article about this? Of course. It's educational. Cool. Okay. Yeah, it's it's for human coronaviruses. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, here's, here's the thing. I, Even so, then, you don't so, know that there was again. a homologous transfer between SARS-CoV-2 and what were the originally accepted genetic sequences of, of those four coronaviruses. There's nothing in this documentation that suggests that you can test for that. Yeah, you can. You can monitor a population and see if, if COVID does not enter a a population, do you eventually get off-target effects? And that was done in this test. You can see it done in real-world data in countries such as Australia. Okay, that's South a claim Korea for which you don't have data. I'm asking if that was done. Yes. I, you're, you're using this as your exhibit. Matthew. You're, you're using this as your exhibit. Matthew. Do you want to pull up the test positivity rate in Australia real quick? If you like, just go to Google, do COVID, type in COVID cases. Uh, how about you do that for us? I'm on one screen tonight, so the computer is going to be slow. But look, here's, here's another way you can test for this hypothesis you have. If if what you're saying would happen, then it, we would see it in sequencing data. Sequencing data is really widespread. Millions and millions of uh, sequences. Now, given your rules, I assume that you were going to bring the data. You're just, you're, as far as I can tell, you're just making claims. Do you, not, do you not know that millions and millions of sequences have been gathered for SARS-CoV-2? Uh, <laughs> And now you're just going to talk down to me instead of showing the data. Um, you know what? I, here's a question. Here's a question. Um, you know, you were talking about looking at Australian data because you wanted me to see what the positive rates look like, you know, it, it, in testing with another country, right? Um, can you walk us through the process? What statistics do you need to compute the true positive and false positive rate? Uh, you, you've got yourself on mute. I think you did that. I'll try to unmute you here. Either that or we have technical difficulty, but uh, I think you may have put yourself on mute. I don't know. I don't know what happened there. Okay, I can hear you. And are you asking in general? Sure. How do you how do you compute the uh, true positive and False positive rates, true there's negative, a, false negative rates. There's a way to do it. I, I know that I know what the calculations you're talking about are, but I can't explain them offhand. You can't explain that. You can't explain what data you need, but, no, you, but, I, you, I but you feel confident that you you can you can talk about this with us. No, Matthew, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm not going to try to teach it offhand. 
it's pretty simple. Um, yeah, you can you can go through it if you like. Okay, well, I, I I'm going to assume that mean that you that means that you can't. Uh, I mean, you know, this you know, you're 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 making you're taking the position that you're like an authority, as in you understand what's going on with all this. And I ask for how a simple calculation would be performed, and you're like, oh, I, I'm not going to do that, Matthew. It's something that we can look up right now. I know what you're talking about. Why would you need to look it up? Because I know the calculation, but I also know it's not as simple as what I'm thinking of right now. So, well, okay. What, not, why, why, why don't I give you the statistics? I don't know why you're. Why, why don't I give you the numbers, and and you can tell us what to do with these numbers? Is that reasonable? No. Okay. I think we can. I think I'm trying to ask you, you know, why we haven't seen rampant false positives in populations that did not have large amounts of COVID cases and why we don't see what you're talking about in sequencing data. I think that's really what's important here. Not I, 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 I personally don't believe you know how to read the data. I don't believe that you know how to read and interpret the tests. What tests? Like, like, to, like what? To, under, to understand what validation is for PCR. Okay, how do you validate a PCR? Okay, well, let's talk about sensitivity. So you can tell our audience what sensitivity is. I assume. You're asking me a question? Sure. What are you asking? What, what's the sensitivity of a test? It's the, how, how much, oh God, it's how well the test can detect low amounts of material. Well, it's not low amounts necessarily. It could be, uh, sensitivity could be specified at different levels at different amounts. Yeah, I know. I know these things have very specific definitions, which I'm not going to rattle off right now or remind myself what they are. It's, it's the percent chance that a person who is infected tests positive. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Well, it's, it's the definition. Um, you're reading off definitions. I know, I know you're, you're I'm not reading off definitions. I don't need to read off definitions. I I've written, I've written a book that includes these computations. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So, so specificity now mm -hmm. is how accurate it is. The percent chance that you will actually detect what you're detecting. No, that you will actually detect what you're hoping to detect. And not something else. Um, what you're hoping to detect, and the percent chance you detect. Uh, so you're talking about positivity and specificity. Okay. That you're going um, to detect something specific and not something off target. See, you're get, you're trying to get into these definitions, and it's just not helping the conversation. I would I like think, to know. I think that it is the foundation like, of the conversation. I would, like to, I would like to know why, if your hypothesis is correct, that you can have all these off-target effects and all this random 
integration. We don't have to know the mechanism. Hang that's on. not what that's not what most biomedical testing does. Hang on. Mechanisms Hang on. are very hard to get to. It's rare that we actually know it with with perfect understanding what a mechanism is. Hang on. That's Hang not on. what we're talking we mechanism. I'm not talking about mechanism. If I just want you okay, to yeah, by the way, you're you're violating another one of your rules. I'm trying to make a point here and you're talking over me and I'm trying to get you to stop and let me make my point. I believe you just talked over me, but I'll let you go. Uh, I started asking my question and then my question interrupted the middle of your sentence. So anyway, if we have a situation where we do not see any rampant false positives and we don't see integration of SARS-CoV-2 sequences into other coronaviruses in the mass amounts of sequencing data that we have. And why do you think your hypothesis is still valid? How do you, what, so you, you make the statement that we don't see massive amounts of false positives. Yeah, we don't. How do you know? You don't even know how that calculation's done. Yes, I do, Matthew. You're, you're getting into definitions again. Okay, okay, we'll continue then. We'll continue with this exercise. Matthew. So we have a population. Matthew. I can just show you data right now. You can show me data that says the proportion of false positives. I can show you the percent test positivity. That's not the same thing. You know that you can have nearly 100% sensitivity and specificity and still have more false positives than positives. But we don't have that for COVID. Well, it depends on the infection rate, right? We have it in some seasons and we don't in others. The, the false positive rate changes dramatically throughout the pandemic as, as it does for almost any kind of a test, right? The, yeah. the, the other, in fact, the other variable that we need is the percent infected in order to determine the false positivity rate. Because I'm sure that you will agree, if 0% of people are infected, you have a 100% false positive rate. How do you determine the percent? How do you determine the number infected? Okay. Um, it, it, well, it depends on the season and the time. And what we can do sometimes is if we can get the false positive rate, then we can back out what the, the, what the rate of actual infection was. We can use those two variables and solve an equation. So let's take a look at how this works. So percent infected, let's say that there are 4% of people infected and out of a million, how many would that be? 4% of a million. About 40,000. Okay, exactly 40,000. Great. So we have 960,000 uninfected, and we have 40,000 infected. And now let's let's create a hypothetical test. Let's let's create a test that has uh, sensitivity 99.2% and specificity 99.6%. This is better than most biomedical testing. Um, I know that there are claims of, of some PCRs that are higher. Again, I, I believe very strongly that's environment specific. Uh, in fact, the CDC agrees with me, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but let, let's go ahead and, and compute here. What, what do you think that, that the, the, uh, the true positive rate is gonna be? Just, do you have a guess? Sorry, for what? For this test, for this hypothetical test and this hypothetical illness, we'll call this illness the funk. Test everybody. Sure, we'll test everybody. I don't. I mean, but it, it's the same as saying we're going to 
take one random person from the pool and test them. You know, we, we'll get the same answer. But sure, we, we can compute it by testing everybody. If you test one person, you're not going to get any percent. Well, the, the, the point is to have an expected value. We can do it probabilistically. Yeah, which you need to determine empirically with a large population. Anyway. It's the same calculation either way. You're asking me how many people are going to test positive in this test. That a person is infected given a positive test. Do you know the base theorem notation? Yes, I know what you're getting out here. Okay. So what do we do here? What what do you mean? Well, let's compute the false positive rate or the true positive rate. This do you have an intuitive guess before we start? Is it 99%? Is it 90%, 50%, 10%? This means, are you assuming that the test has 100% specificity here? No, no. Like I said, the test has 99.2% sensitivity and 99.6% specificity. Okay. You can go over, you can go over this math problem that you've created while I get real world data. But the point is, I don't think you can read real world data. I don't think that you know how to interpret it. Oh, yes, I do. Well, that's what I'm testing for. You you have the opportunity to show the audience right here that you understand, you understand these relationships. Because listening to you talk, I had every sense that you were just grabbing a phrase to throw into the conversation without understanding the relationship. So I'm giving you that chance to prove me wrong. Nope, I'm looking at real world data. I just linked it to you now. How do you check the real world data? What do you mean by check? If you don't know how to do these computations, what on earth would you do to test real world data? What do you, so you want to find out how many people are truly positive in this situation. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, no, I, I mean, we know how many people are truly positive. That's a given in this particular model. But in a real world scenario, how do you determine that? Um, well, we, we, we can discuss this after we have the equation. I'll just show where the equation is going to be an identity and we can move pieces of the identity around to isolate anyone that we want. Right. So let's just let's again, create the identity. Again, That's what we're doing. In a real world scenario, how do you determine how many people are truly positive in order for this equation to be useful in a real world scenario? Well, uh, if, if I walk through that, then I will have completed the test for you. I know how that's done. I don't believe that you do. That's the point of this moment right here. So again, how do you determine how many people are truly positive empirically? Or are you talking about an estimate? Um, well, I mean, everything in a sense is an estimate because, you know, it, it, even like, you know, where we round the decimal points, that actually matters. Um, but, uh, you know, the point is, that if I answer that, then I've solved the problem for you. And I will answer that, but I, I want you to admit that you can't solve the problem before I answer that. I want to talk about real world data. I don't want to go through this equation that you've made up. It's <laughs> that I've made up. Yes, because we're talking about real world data and I don't want to go through hypothetical scenarios on how these equations well, are. This is, this is, and I, I've done this before. I have, yeah. I have contracted to perform these calculations. This is actually how sensitivity and specificity 
are determined by testing companies. Yes, I understand that. But we are talking about real world scenarios here. You can go through the FDA document on how this test was validated. You can go through the real world data as well. I want to go through the real world data. Well, the real world data that you just sent, and I'll share this now, the real world data that you just sent mm -hmm. um, doesn't go through that. It goes through uh, I'll, I'll show it. positivity. Right, but what does positivity mean unless you know the rate of false positives and true positives? It's the rate of tests that tested positive under the criteria of the test. So if you're saying that there are lots of false positives, then where are the false positives? During the time when Australia had virtually no COVID, where were all the false positives, even though tens of thousands of PCR tests are being done a day? Oh, that's an interesting question because the actual positives that were being reported sometimes were statistically impossible according to the sensitivity and specificity, as in they were like winning the lottery twice over. Oh, so it's almost like these theoretical things are entirely dependent on the empirical assay that you're using. Or, or somebody's fudging the numbers. It's interesting that there's only a couple of places on earth where, where it, there, that, that statistical anomaly presents there and in, in, uh, uh, what's the province in China where they tested 4.7 million people in 48 hours and found 137 positives? Uh, yeah, uh, Xinjiang, Xinjiang, I think it is. Um, yeah, that that's insane. That never happened. That's it's just a lie, right? So there's, there's sometimes when when you're, when you're so far off in the tail, you go, "That's a lie." You're going <laughs> right? you're just lying. Well, uh, you know, based on sensitivity and specific. I mean, here's the thing. Um, you know, you've got nothing here that breaks these down into true positives and false positives. That's that's the reason I'm trying to go through this exercise. You know, this is the this is what he sent me. You know, positive test rate. Okay, what is you know how how likely is a positive test rate to be a true positive? And we may have uh, technical difficulties. He's still in the studio uh, when he lost video once before he got kicked out but i'll i'll wait for him i can still hear you uh okay um i don't know if the audience can hear you or not but you know uh, first of all i you know you sent me positive data but here's the thing without knowing true positives rate then we don't know how many of these are actual positives so you know that's the point of going through the exercise of how is it that we determine the true positives and the false positive rates and you're working purely theoretically here. Not theoretically. I'm doing calculations based on any data. I'm just inserting variables, you know, or I could replace the numbers that I started with variables. You're, it's theoretical is what you're getting at. Um, it's no more theoretical than a document that says sensitivity is this and specificity is this for this test. No, that's empirical. Okay. Uh, It's empirical based on a it's empirical based on a laboratory, uh, a set of laboratory results that are not the same as the environment in which the test is being used, which was my point earlier. And you say that there's no possible way for that to make a difference. I'm sure that you Obviously. wouldn't take your nasal swab and 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 run it against the bathroom floor and then test and think that it's meaningful, right? You would probably still get a positive 
maybe, maybe, but it wouldn't be as meaningful to you. you it, the way that you just said that, you're assuming that it, it changes sensitivity listen. and specificity. You know listen. that it does. Listen, if you do that and you take that swab, run it up your nose and then run it on the bathroom floor and you get a positive for SARS-CoV-2, it means it was either in your nose or on the bathroom floor or both. Or that it picked up an off-target amplicon. No. You're just wishing away off-target amplicons. I, I'm asking you if there's this such thing as these off-target amplicons that are right. so common. Like I said, I'll, I'll show in the article that I write. I, I, I've got those articles. You're interrupting me again. Oh, sorry. You're right. Thank you. So if there are these off-target amplicons that are so common, why do we not see rampant false positives or SARS-CoV-2 genome sequences in other viruses in all, in all the sequence data? You're assuming that we don't? We don't. <laughs> I can sh I can send you the GS aid data. So, and and this was actually part of the reason I wanted to walk through this exercise is because even this exercise shows you that an ordinary PCR test should show a whole bunch of false positives. Should show a pretty substantial false positive rate. Should, uh, you know what? I, I'm going to finish walking through the calculations because I the claims that you made I think warrant me going ahead and completing this Again. exercise. So. This is the way that we do this. So according to Bayes' theorem, P A condition B is P A and B over P B. And I'll draw out a picture to justify that. If we have this whole population and we have the people who are infected in the red, that's a subset. And then we have the proportion of the people who test positive, then this numerator A and B, that's right here, that's within a, a test signal and being infected, divided by P of B, given a positive test, divided by everything in, in the, in the uh, test positive circle. So yeah, that's the logic as to how we would set up that, that that's the logic of Bayes' theorem. And so let's do that. So a number of people who test positive and are infected. So if we have 40,000 people who are infected, what do we do to figure out how many of those 40,000 test positive? You're asking me a question? Sorry, what was it? Sure, um, how, how do we determine how many of those 40,000 people test positive? Are you saying, the correct answer is to do the experiment and see how many test positive. You're, again, it's, it's- But the numbers have to come from the experiment. If there is an experiment, then these numbers exist. If these numbers exist, then there is an experiment that says that they do, do right? Do you think those experiments are going, do you think that that experiment is going to be 100% applicable to every single iteration of that experiment? You just made it sound like it was. You just made it sound like sensitivity and specificity were the same regardless of conditions. That was that was your position. No. So what conditions are you talking about? Let's just let's just clear this up. Okay, I agree that conditions are important. I absolutely do. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and say that we're in conditions for whence for which this sensitivity and specificity number are applicable. That that testing has been done and that these are empirically generated numbers, sensitivity and specificity. So 
99.2% of 40,000 is going to give us 39,680. Yeah. Um, so we have 320 false positives. Okay. And so now um, negatives. So we've got 960,000 people, 0.4% of them have a false negative. So we're going to get positive tests for uh, 3,840. Okay. So what's our true positive rate here? I'm not looking at your numbers, but again, this is... Oh, uh, sorry. I, I thought I had my screen share on. Again, this is just, this is not what I'm trying to get at here because this is all theoretical and in practice, it we see something very different. These numbers are absolutely determined by sensitivity, specificity, and infection rate. They cannot be divorced from it. This is an identity, right? This is not like, sure, you know, the 99.2%, 99.6%, those are theoretical numbers, but those are close to what the PCR sensitivity claims are for some of these tests, right? Yes, but in a real world setting, we don't see that there are mass amounts of false positives. That's just what we see. Okay, you're making a claim, but you're not, you're, you're, it doesn't, be, so I've done these calculations. And I showed you the data. No, you showed me positive tests. You didn't show any data that suggested true positive versus false positives. I had nothing. It, do you, you don't even know how to read that data if you think that's what it means. It didn't say anything about false positives. Not one thing on that page. Sure it did. Because if we... Oh my gosh. It just said positives. If we look at the percent positivity, those are true positives that were reported as positive. Yes. I don't think you know that relationship. I don't think you, first of all, no, no, <laughs> but no. You, you wouldn't know that relationship. So those are not true positives that are reported. Some of positive. them are true positives. Some of them are false positives. They're just positives, Dan. That's all that sheet says. If, if you don't know that positives include true and false positives and that that rate would need to be determined to make a statement about it, I don't even know what to tell you. Okay. So in those false positives, Okay, what is, what is the point you're trying to make about those? Well, uh, let's see what happens if we just slightly alter the circumstances. It is that false, po this false positive rate is, is about 9%. Do you see why? In your calculation, yeah. I, 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 again, I've seen these calculations before. Right. They just don't play out in the real world. I, I, I don't even know what that would mean. It's an identity. It, right, the, like whatever the real world says, that's what determines your sensitivity and specificity. If these calculations are not correct, then one of the variables, infected rate or sensitivity or specificity, would have to be wrong. Right? This is an identity. It's not a. It's not a. Let's see what happens in the real world. If if this is not correct, then one of the one or more of those three variables is not correct. It's determined in a validation setting. In the real world, where. Yeah using Lots this yeah, using exactly what we're doing i mean what i'm doing is the calculations that would be part of that validation i have done those calculations before i know but then you have to look at the real world data 
it's from real world data. I mean, this oh, example is not, but you're, but you're pulling you're pulling the sensitivity and specificity numbers from a laboratory validation setting. And, and then, now, okay, and saying that it that it applies automatically to all PCR tests. Okay, that was your assumption, and I went with it. You were the one who who claimed that sensitivity and specificity did not change according to environment. I think they changed dramatically what, what mean by because we get off-target amplicons. Listen, I think I think your definitions are a little bit different from what I'm hearing. So, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I mean, these are the definitions that are always used for test validation. Uh, they've been used for decades. Everything is written this way. Sensitivity, define specificity. Define environment. What, what do you mean by environment are going to affect the testing conditions? Any Anything that would have a variable that would make a difference. That's it. Okay. Sure. It's not really going to change whether or not SARS-CoV-2 is actually in that sample. Well, we have a percented percent infected here. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I, I think that's about all we need, honestly. Here, here. I sent you, sent you this. Mm -hmm. Let me share my screen. Yeah, um, I'll share it for the audience since you're screen, uh, since you don't have as good a connection today. Sure. Is this what you're bringing up? That's just all the genome sequences that you can look at, so that you can you know see if your hypothesis of recombination is is true. But the one before that. Uh, okay. And I, and I still would like an answer to that question of. If your hypothesis is true, then where are the genome sequences showing that? If which hypothesis is true? That SARS-CoV-2 is recombining with, for example, human coronaviruses and thus creating off-target effects, creating false positives. I'm saying that it could happen. The fact that it's not being, if it's not being tested for, that doesn't mean that it's not it happening. It's being tested for in genome sequences. Okay, that's another claim. You can back that up with the data that's on screen right now. Okay. Millions of genome sequences. Okay. Nothing like what you claim has been shown. So how many genome sequences <laughs> are sufficient? That's, that's, what, that's what showing data means to you. So how many? There's a map. You can see. What am I doing here? You can I, by the way, I, I use this map all the time. We, we, we get a lot of data from just eight. So go ahead. You can literally access millions of genomes from there. I know. So what are we looking at? That's the database. You can look through the genomes. There is nothing like what you're describing that has been found in all of these millions of genome sequences. That we haven't had homologous transfer within the, the quasi-species viral swarm? That we have not seen SARS-CoV-2 genes transfer to a human coronavirus and then have that show up as a positive test on a PCR test. Okay, that's a whole lot of things at once. But um, it's happening here, right? Uh, I, I, I'm saying that that's one possible way. I'm saying that's one possible way. But you're you're making a claim. You're 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 having me look at a map, and then you're claiming a whole lot of stuff at once. Matthew, <laughs> are, are these are these not 
is this not a database of 13 million viral genome sequences? I don't know how many are in here, but I've looked at it plenty. It says right at the top, 13 million, 27,000. Okay. Oh, you're right, it does. Yeah. Okay. COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 genome sequences. Sure. So out of all those millions of genome sequences, can you find one where it is actually human coronavirus with SARS-CoV-2 sequences that made it test positive for PCR? Well, I don't know. I haven't tried yet. You're making an absolute, you're the one who's making a claim about the data. Your rule was that we support the claims. Yeah, there's right? nothing. You're, like you're saying I don't have to run an experiment. You, you can you look. Run an experiment. I don't have to. Matthew, you can look <laughs> through the data yourself. I've done it. Others have done it. There is nothing in there. I, I very, given what I saw today, I very much doubt you would know how to look through this data. What? Why would you think that? It's genome sequences. Because you can't do a computation that I do with middle school students. Matthew, why is there not what you're hypothesizing in this data set? Okay, you're claiming that there's not. This is breaking your own rule. There is not. Can you show me one? <laughs> there's not because I haven't shown you one yet. So I have to I have to drop everything and do that so now. Matthew, so Matthew, okay. if, so if you were to look through that whole genome sequence data set and That's not your claim. find... That's your claim. Why don't you do a video Matthew, and you Matthew, show that experiment? Matthew, you run stop, that experiment. Stop, Matthew, stop. Matthew, stop. If you were to look through that whole genome sequence database and not find what your hypothesize existing, what would you do? What would your reaction be? Well, first of all, it's only one of the ways I said the Matthew, test would be What would your reaction be? Well, then I would I would drop the hypothesis. Good. So But actually 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 only hypothesis. only if I was sure only if point. I was sure that that database included the entire viral swarm, which I'm not sure that it does. I don't think that it does. Matthew, it includes 13 million sequenced, full genome sequenced SARS-CoV-2 variants. There are dozens of coronaviruses out there that we don't test for. From PCR positive tests. If okay. you were to look through the whole thing and others have done it for you, and there is nothing in there that suggests what you're thinking exists. Well, this is, first of all, let, let's be clear. This is not a complete gene, uh, database. This is a highly censored database. No, it's full genome sequences. No, no, absolutely not. Um, I, I can point. I can point to, and I have in articles before. I pointed to to uh, to records that have then been removed. It's full genome sequences. I'm not right, talking about but records have been removed. Inconvenient records that showed that the narrative wasn't necessarily true. There was an Omicron sequence from all the way back in July of 2011 in South Africa that was removed from GISAID, right? 2011. 20, sorry, 2021. Are you yeah. unfamiliar with this case? I'm not. So, and I, I really don't think that you're telling the truth there, but <laughs> Matthew, the point is <laughs> you made a specific point. You made a specific claim that you think that SARS-CoV-2 is recombining with other viruses to create these false positives. No, I said that was one way. And that, yeah, you said that was happening. And I asked, how would you know if it, if, that it's not? Sequences. This, this, is not, this is not a database of all sequences of all coronaviruses in the swarm. That's not what that is. Are you asking for all, a database of all coronaviruses ever in existence? The ones that would be traveling around in the, in, among human populations in the quasi-species swarm. Yeah, we have a pretty good idea of the coronaviruses that are traveling between humans on a daily basis. Well, you just claim that there are four. I'm going to show evidence in my article that there are more. 
that we used to find them all the time and we just stopped looking for them. There are four human coronaviruses. There are <laughs> other coronaviruses that can sometimes infect humans. I mean, it, it, even the fact that we call it the quasi-species demonstrates that we don't even like to to uh, identify viruses on the level of like calling them speciated, right? Because there's not even a good definition. There's never a good definition of speciation, but it's far worse when it comes to viruses. We've been going on for a little more than an hour. I'm going to give you final word of summary. So we're, we, we got off track with that. I just really would like you to answer this question of how you think that a virus you know, that a PCR test for a vaccinated and unvaccinated person would detect a virus differently. What do you mean detect a virus differently? I don't know what that you, phrase you, means. You were, you were saying that an unvaccinated person and a vaccinated person are going to somehow, their samples are going to behave differently in a PCR test and thus both need to be validated. Oh, there are a whole bunch of ways. I mean, the, the most commonly discussed is you've got the quasi-species swarm, right? The vaccine goes in and, and it's, it's, you know, we're putting in a very specific protein. Suddenly there are antibodies to that protein and, and uh, members of the, of the cloud sort of back away from that reproduction, but you still got the cloud, right? And, and if there is enough in there that could still infect a person and cause harm, then there's still positivity. Uh, then there's still positivity to other tests, but not that one. There's, there's still, excuse me, I, I mean to say there's still infection even if there's not a positive test. I mean, this, this isn't hard. This is well known. This is, uh, yeah. and I know you've been saying that all night and I haven't, I haven't liked to hear it, but, but um, I, I will, I will, you know, if you're not familiar with how the quasi-species swarm works and if you're not familiar with the argument that it shifts upon vaccination, I mean, that's Geert Vanderbosch's argument. Yeah, I know it's terrible. It, Gert, Gert, it's terrible. Gert is just terrible. So okay, well, it's cited by Anthony Fauci. Gert was cited by Anthony Fauci. Yes, in terms of the fact that the quasi-species swarm can dodge anti uh, antibodies after a vaccination, when, yeah. when you have when you have the kind of virus that lives in a swarm where where you have um, a different level of speciation amongst the viruses, like this is why this is why you had uh, the problems with uh, like Merrick's disease in chickens. Merrick's disease. Yeah, uh, if you're not familiar, this is what um, no, I, I, I it didn't sound like you said Merrick's disease. I'm just clarifying. I believe that's what it's called. I did I get it wrong? The I, disease that uh, got worse in chickens. Merrick's disease. Yeah. 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 So, no. Uh, OK, here's what you're talking about. You're talking about prolonged viral infections where lots of mutations are happening. That's the situation. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, that, that, that's the situation you're talking about. I'm just talking about. about carving a hole in the swarm. Okay. You know, okay. if you only have antibodies that are specific to one fraction of the cloud, then the rest of the cloud moves on. Is it just antibodies that are acting as a selection pressure for the virus? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on, it depends on how yeah, effective the vaccine is at eliciting other immunogenic responses. Yeah, you have But, I, you know, I, I don't want to say for sure. It probably depends on the circumstances. You have T cells too. It's not just antibodies. So, in order, well, these vaccines don't do that very well. Yeah, they do. They they induce a pretty durable T cell response. What, what what percentage? In the majority of people. In the majority of people, you've got data to back that up. Yes. Can you show me? Oh dear God. Because I believe I have that data. Anyway. The point is, in a prolonged infection, which is what Merrick's disease 
is talking about, that is when you will have selection against have selection for virus that is really good at evading neutralizing antibodies. Okay. Okay, I have an article from The Guardian here that says the different vaccines, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, were listing 12 to 29% uh, T-cell response. Uh, T-cell detection. Well, there's an article from Science saying that, showing empirical data, that that is not true. That you can show me that? I just linked it to you. Oh, let me see. A robust T-memory response. Anyway, there is no reason. I'll, 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 take, I'll take a look at this. I, I have my doubts, but I, I'll take a look at this. That's all I can ask of you. Just take a look at it. But anyway, the point is that there is no reason why a PCR test would behave differently on a vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person, unless the person who is being tested, whether or not they were vaccinated, has been in chronically infected for a long period of time and the virus has undergone significant mutation and selection. Okay, and that's an assumption. No, and, it's and, and it is, it's, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, because, even, because even with Omicron, which probably emerged, and I, I know you have different ideas about this, we're not gonna get into it, probably emerged due to a chronic infection where the person was generating neutralizing antibodies, but did not have a great T cell response, and thus the virus evolved to evade the neutralizing antibodies. No, that, not 50 mutations in one protein? Yeah, but because neutralizing antibodies target multiple sites on the protein. So it's gonna the, most, the, the furthest we've seen uh, in, in any tree within one individual was eight mutations. Uh, 50, 50 is absurd. I did this on, I started doing this calculation with Kevin McKernan the other day. I think you're going to have uh, several hundred pounds of virions go through a body before you get that far. But yeah, again, <laughs> again, for a chronic infection, it's not a, it's not a problem for a virus to have several hundred pounds of virions go through a body. That's more than all the virions of SARS-CoV-2 in the world right now, actually. No, I don't know if you know that. That calculation but, is not necessary. All it needs is time. It doesn't need it doesn't need vast amounts of virus. Time. To, <laughs> you go through many virions over time. It's it's going to be the same thing. Uh, th those two are linked uh, identically, but okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, I think that uh, I, I don't think the conversation could possibly go any further, uh, but thanks for your time. I, mean, I, think, and... I think it could if you answered some of my questions, but that's fine. We can. <laughs> okay. Uh, sure. All right. Um, take care, Dan. Hey, you want to talk about vaccine safety at sometime? Uh, I, I, I really don't believe that it's going to be productive, to be honest. So take care. All right, everybody. It is what it is. Um, you know, don't know what to say, but uh, you know, have a good night.